Welcome to the 47th episode of Coronavirus The Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published in May and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertperlmd.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. We also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, our nation is seeing consistently high numbers of COVID-19 cases, averaging above 150,000 per day, with rising hospitalizations and deaths. Overall, hospitalizations are up 4% over the past two weeks, and deaths have risen by 29%. Daily mortality is now above 1,500 people per day. And in Idaho, hospitals have started rationing care That means that patients may legally now not be given the best medical care, such as being placed on an appropriate monitoring device if sicker patients require them. And according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, kids now make up 25% of new weekly COVID-19 cases nationwide. The daily vaccination rate seems to be bobbing up and down. On one hand, 14 million people in the U.S., received their first vaccine dose in August, about 4 million more than in July. On the other hand, in the two weeks after the FDA gave final approval to the Pfizer vaccine, the vaccination rate fell by 38%, contrary to what many health policy experts had expected after the shift from emergency use only to full approval. At this point, only 53.6% of Americans are fully vaccinated, and 62.9% of the population have received at least one shot. For people over the age of 18, 75% have had one shot and 65% have received both doses. Interestingly, 1.64 million Americans have now taken a third shot. In contrast to the United States, the European Union is at 70% fully vaccinated after a much slower start than in the United States. Come January, all public school kids in Los Angeles, 12 and older, will need to be vaccinated to attend school in person. And President Biden has signed an executive order requiring most of the 4 million federal employees to be fully vaccinated without the option of testing as an alternative. Furthermore, the president has asked OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to implement rules for all companies with 100 or more employees to verify that these workers are vaccinated or test them on a weekly basis. This will apply to approximately 80 million workers nationwide. It's clear that major pressure is being brought by the White House and it will intensify for individuals who refuse vaccination. In the eyes of the president, it's a national priority for the physical, 
psychological and economic health of our nation. Robbie, what's the newest data on the effectiveness of a third vaccine shot? Jeremy, it's clear that a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine significantly increases immunity, both against infection and serious illness, particularly in individuals over the age of 60. By 10 days after the booster dose, the level of protection based on data from Israel has been shown to be four times higher than after just two doses and five to six times higher against severe infection. In response to this data, Israel has lowered the age for booster shots for its people to 40, as well as offering them to pregnant women, teachers, and healthcare workers of any age. There's a minimum wait time of five months from the second dose in order to be eligible. To date in the US, there have been 13,000 severe breakthrough infections. That sounds like a high number, but it represents just one in 13,000 vaccinated individuals. And among those vaccinated people who needed hospitalization, 70% of them were over the age of 65, with 87% of the deaths in the same over 65 demographic. The average age of vaccinated adults with breakthrough infections requiring hospitalization was 73, and 71% of these people had three or more chronic diseases. Over the past six months, unvaccinated adults were 17 times more likely to be hospitalized than vaccinated individuals, although more recent data shows that the ratio is now somewhat closer to 10 to 1. In contrast to the vaccinated population, for unvaccinated patients, the average age of people being hospitalized was only 59, and nearly half of them were relatively healthy, with only 50% of them having three or more chronic diseases. And when it comes to adults under the age of 50, nearly all of the people who become very sick and need hospitalization are unvaccinated. What this data indicates is that the vaccine continues to be very effective, but that the immunity in older individuals appears less strong than in younger people. And the difference manifests itself increasingly over time following vaccination. These numbers explain the president's desire to have Americans, particularly those over the age of 60 and those with chronic diseases to receive the third dose. Some scientists at the same time are not as convinced and it remains uncertain how much of these breakthrough infections reflect changes in the Delta variant and how much of the problem is age-related and chronic disease being the origin of the reduced protection. Robbie, speaking about a different Delta, the airlines, they've decided to impose a $200 added cost of insurance for employees who are unvaccinated. What do you think of this approach? It's clear, Jeremy, that in the context of the Delta variant, for our nation to save lives, return to a more normal life, and avoid overwhelming hospitals, that we're going to need at least 90% of the population to either 
have been vaccinated or recovered from the virus itself. And that won't happen for a long time if all we do is to continue to encourage people to take the shot. Increasingly, businesses, schools, and the president are frustrated by the slow progress our nation is making and are unwilling to tolerate the current situation. We know that vaccine mandates work and the courts have supported them. So if our country wants to end the current pandemic, stronger measures will be needed, far stronger in the future than we've used in the past. At the same time, we also know that many unvaccinated workers aren't happy about these mandates. And some are willing to change jobs if vaccination becomes a requirement. In this case of Delta Airlines, the penalty for unvaccinated workers, I believe, is the attempt to find a middle ground. In this case of Delta Airlines penalty for its unvaccinated workers, I believe the company is trying to find a middle ground, one that it can explain and justify. It's saying to people, you can make your own vaccination decision, but if you decide not to become protected, you'll have to pay for the higher medical costs that you're likely to incur. The company estimates that the average hospital stay for one of its employees who becomes very sick from COVID-19 is $50,000. And at $200 per month, the $2,400 per year that would be collected would offset a 5% chance of an unvaccinated person becoming severely ill from COVID. Although I'm not sure that the company's numbers are fully accurate, the approach will serve as a nudge for those workers who are at least open to the idea of vaccination. As you know, Jeremy, I teach at the Stanford University School of Business and incentives, both positive and negative, have been shown to be powerful motivators of individual behavior. But in the context of labor law relative to medical coverage, the size of this penalty would likely face legal challenge. And the reality that vaccinated people can also become ill would raise concerns that this penalty is excessively punitive. Personally, I favor United Airlines vaccination mandate over this one. I think it's more honest. If you believe an action is so vital to people's health that you're going to force them to do it as their employer, I think you should just say so. And of course, with the new Biden requirement for businesses with over 100 employees, it's more likely the company will rely on a vaccine mandate rather than continuing to proceed with a monthly required fee. Jeremy, throughout history, in times of war, nations usually become more cohesive. But in times of plague, groups of people blame and turn on each other. COVID-19 is both a war and a plague. How do you see the impact COVID-19 has had on America relative to cohesiveness? And how different is our nation now than a year ago? 
Robbie, if you look back 20 years ago from today, it was right after the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. I was a senior in high school when it happened, and I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, if there was one bright spot about that tragedy, it was how unified it made the country feel. Brown, white, black, left, right, Democrat, Republican, independent, we were all united. Uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic, it has been the exact opposite. We were already very divided politically when the virus came to America. Sadly, the media and politicians use the pandemic as a way to make themselves look better and make their opponents look worse. There has been so much animosity towards different elected officials and how they handled the pandemic, whether the economic restrictions were too tough on the economy and someone lost their small business or lost their job, or people who felt like the restrictions were not tough enough in their area and they lost a loved one or two due to the pandemic. The division we're seeing right now is unlike anything we have seen before as a nation since the James Buchanan presidency right before the American Civil War. It is scary and it is heartbreaking. Both sides have been guilty about talking about their political opponents in a way that dehumanizes them. That is very dangerous. People are losing friends or being kicked out of their families. It is beyond heartbreaking. We all need to remember there is a lot more that brings us together and unites us than divides us. The division needs to stop before it gets too dangerous. Robbie, after our last show, several listeners said they had wanted more information about the dangers of their teenagers developing myocarditis after the vaccination and unsure about having them vaccinated at all. What do we know now? Unfortunately, when it comes to COVID-19, everything has risks. A large study from Israel published in the New England Journal of Medicine showed that there's an added risk of developing heart inflammation, myocarditis, particularly in younger individuals after vaccination. But it also demonstrated that the likelihood is very low. And more importantly, it showed that the risk of developing myocarditis is far higher from the actual disease itself, which means that your risk of developing this inflammation of the heart after a COVID infection is far greater than developing it simply after the vaccine itself. Much of the research on COVID-19 comes from Israel for two reasons. First, the country has been at the forefront of vaccine administration. And second, it has an excellent national electronic health record system, something our country lacks. Researchers looked at the medical data on 2 million people who had been vaccinated. And they found that the average age of the individuals who developed myocarditis after vaccination was 25, with 19 of the 21 individuals being male. They then compared people who were vaccinated against those who were not. And they found that for every 100,000 individuals who received the vaccine, there were approximately 2.7 more cases of myocarditis than what normally would expect. But for those who were unvaccinated and contracted COVID, there were 11 additional cases of myocarditis. As such, in the context of COVID, vaccination would appear to lower, not raise the probability of someone developing this specific complication. In fact, a different study, one that's awaiting peer review, demonstrated that among 12 to 17 year old boys, the risk of myocarditis was six times higher after infection with COVID than after vaccination itself. And that research, along with similar comparison studies around blood clots and heart attacks, that also showed vaccination to be safer than becoming ill adds further support to the benefits of lowering the age 
for vaccine eligibility. Robbie, what's the newest in the string of Greek-lettered coronavirus variants? The newest variant is called Mu, M-U. It was first detected in Colombia in January. It's been identified by the World Health Organization as a variant of interest. It is of concern since it appears to be more resistant to the immunity created by the current vaccines than we saw in prior strains. In its weekly epidemiological report, the WHO noted that this variant has a cluster of mutations that potentially could lead to immune escape. It currently accounts for 39% of cases in Colombia and 13% in Ecuador, but only 0.1% of global infections. It's still too early to tell whether this strain will pose even more of a problem in the US than the current Delta strain, or whether it will remain confined predominantly to South America. The most frequent questions listeners are sending us continues to be around kids. Last month, schools opened. What did we learn? As schools reopened, we saw about what we would expect. In low vaccination areas, there were major outbreaks and some schools were forced to close. In Mississippi, 15% of students have had to be quarantined since the start of the school year. In contrast, in high vaccination areas, particularly those that have required masks and social distancing, the infection rates have been lower and nearly all stayed open. However, there have been exceptions. In an elementary school in Marin County, an area just north of San Francisco in California, an unvaccinated teacher became infected, but continued to teach. She read out loud to a class where there was a school policy requiring masks, but her students weren't wearing them. The elementary grade kids, of course, were too young to be vaccinated, and 12 of the 24 kids in the class developed COVID-19. In total, 26 people, including the 12 from the class, were infected from this one teacher based on genomic testing of the virus in each case. As would be expected, the percentage of students who came down with the virus was higher for those kids in the first two rows than the rest of the class. This experience demonstrated the validity of the principles that we now recognize about viral transmission. It's high in people who aren't vaccinated. It's higher when masks are not worn and it's greatest when people are in close proximity to someone who's infected. Overall, 17 states now require masks in school, but seven states have prohibited such mandates. 63% of parents, according to a Kaiser Family Foundation survey, favor masks in school for anyone and everyone who remains unvaccinated. Half of students, 12 to 17, have received at least one vaccine dose. The three largest school districts in the nation, New York City, LA, and Chicago, have teacher vaccine mandates in place. With the new Biden mandate, this will expand to nearly all schools once the program is fully implemented. Robbie, a listener asked us about the use of ivermectin to treat COVID-19. She said her friends were recommending it. What's the story there? Ivermectin is a drug that is used to kill worms and parasites in the intestines of animals and in low doses to treat people with some rare worm diseases like river blindness and other parasitic infections. It's also been used topically, meaning on the skin, 
for head lice. For reasons that are unclear, some people have begun to recommend it through the internet as a treatment for COVID-19, despite no data about its use and limited data on its safety. To date, 14 studies have concluded that the drug is ineffective against COVID and potentially dangerous. For completeness, there was one study that showed it can kill the virus in the lab, but the doses used would have been toxic and potentially lethal in humans. Even the company that manufactures the medication isn't promoting it. And the FDA and CDC have reports of severe illness from people getting a hold of and taking veterinary versions of the medication, which are far higher doses that would normally be used in people. Two individuals have had to be hospitalized with neurological symptoms. Despite the science, 88,000 prescriptions were filled in the third week of August when pharmaceutical data was collected, a 24 times higher prescription rate than normal. Jeremy, I remain baffled why people would take medications that haven't been shown to provide value and have a high chance of complications, but they refuse a vaccine that has been shown to be over 90% effective at preventing serious disease from COVID-19 and has a proven safety record. Robbie, our good news segment is something that is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good this week? Jeremy, the best news is how effective booster shots seem to be. A preprint of an article from researchers in Israel showed that adults who have received a third Pfizer shot had an 11-fold decrease in the risk of getting infected and over a 10-fold decrease in their risk of developing severe disease. And this study included 1 million people aged 60 and older. That would indicate that if we can vaccinate enough people, at least now, we'll have the upper hand when it comes to reducing breakthrough infections and the need for hospitalization. And that would be great news. A second good news story comes from Bangladesh. Researchers there show that the wearing of masks of any type diminished transmission by approximately 10% and that surgical masks were even more effective than cloth ones. And mask wearing, they showed, didn't lead people to avoid social distancing or any of the other recommended public health measures. And putting all the recent research together, our country has a two-part clear strategy that if implemented, could be successful in ending this viral pandemic. The first part would be for the next several months, maximize social distancing and masks with a promise to ease the restrictions once enough people are vaccinated and have received their boosters to generate broad immunity. And second, through mandates, achieve vaccination rates at the levels we reached in the past. If we can do that over the next four months, we would protect enough people to reach the 90% level needed for herd immunity. And our nation could be able to start the new year in a more normal way, assuming, of course, that no mutant strains get in the way. Robbie, we continue to hear from listeners that they enjoy our efforts to expand the material on this podcast beyond COVID-19 and the coronavirus. What's the big story this week? Jeremy, this one is controversial and it relates to the Texas abortion law that was just passed 
and the Supreme Court's decision not to hold it in abeyance until a final ruling can be made on its constitutionality. I want to begin by acknowledging the religious views of some people on the subject of abortion. But as a physician, I believe that women will still go ahead and in doing so, they will pose severe risks to their lives. And as a doctor, I believe that isn't the right healthcare policy, nor is it in line with the current law of the land, which is the Roe v. Wade decision of the Supreme Court in the past. The bill itself is very problematic. First, it sets the ban on abortion to when the heart first beats, which is around six weeks of gestation, long, long before the fetus is viable, and usually before the woman is even aware that she's pregnant. Second, it bans state officials from enforcing the law and instead deputizes private individuals to sue anyone who performs the procedure or in any way abets it, encouraging these vigilantes by making them entitled to a $10,000 reward and payment for their legal fees should the offenders be found guilty. In contrast, if a defendant is found not guilty, she or he would not be entitled to having their legal costs reimbursed, even though they're innocent and falsely accused. This strange design of the statute was put in place to make it almost impossible for people to go to court and block the law. Normally, the process of challenging a law would be for someone, including the pregnant woman, to bring a suit and ask the court to prohibit a specific person or government agency from enforcing the statute. But with the vagueness of who might report the abortion, the typical legal challenge can't occur and you'd have to ask the court to stop all 330 million Americans. Although this is a preliminary ruling and the court is likely to reconsider the law after a fuller review, it bodes poorly for women, not only in Texas, but other states that are likely to pass similar legislation. And the exclusion of exceptions for crimes like rape and incest demonstrate the political nature of the bill. The four dissenting judges all wrote scathing commentaries. The five who voted to uphold the law at the time did not sign the one paragraph explanation. As a nation, we struggle to define when human life begins. In this case, I believe Texas got it wrong and women and children will suffer as a consequence. The Department of Justice has now filed a suit in opposition to the law. Jeremy, whenever I think the issues facing our nation can't become more contentious, I'm proven wrong. You are a historian. What can we learn from past moments in American history and how do you see it impacting healthcare in the future? For me, I think the division is extremely concerning. And like I said earlier, I cannot think of a time in history when we were this divided since the American Civil War. Uh, the trend I've been seeing on social media that has been particularly concerning to me is people who are actively wishing harm or wanting hospitals to refuse care for the unvaccinated. I really do understand people's frustration with the vaccine hesitant, but the othering of one's political opponents and wishing harm on them is disgusting and dangerous. 
we are all still neighbors, family, friends, and countrymen, actively wishing harm on people you disagree with politically or spreading misinformation about them to make them look bad is only going to further entrench them in their beliefs and increase their skepticism. For example, there's recently a news article that went viral online and was even shared by well-known people such as Rachel Maddow that a rural hospital in the South was turning away gunshot victims due to the number of people overdosing on the horse version of ivermectin. The hospital went on to release a public statement saying that the story was not true and the person quoted in the article had not even worked there for some time and was never even a full-time staff member. I never once saw Maddow or others go back and say, sorry, I shared an article that was incorrect or even pull down their retweets of the article. And I've seen many on the right claiming that myocarditis and other severe complications are much more common in the vaccine than they actually are. And even when new information comes out, saying that it's not as bad as they just tweeted or say it as dangerous as they said it was, they leave those articles and social media posts up as well. This is a disgusting practice by the media and only further drives the uh, distrust and division. I feel like for many of the vaccine hesitant, it has become much less about concern over the safety of the vaccine and much more of a symbolic way to show resistance for a government they feel is overstepping what they view is constitutionally allowed to do in a media that talks about them like they are worthless and subhuman and backwoods yokels. The Civil War was responsible for the deaths of roughly 750,000 Americans and was the most contentious period of time in American history to date. I would argue that yes, we are the most divided we are since then, but we're not as divided as we were then. If there's a silver lining in all of this, it is that I know we can come together as a nation and heal, and I am very confident we will do so. If you look one or two generations past the American Civil War, the thought of open war on our own countrymen was unthinkable. I feel this is how in a decade or two we will look back on America now, that the division we are facing now will be difficult for us as a nation to even fathom in the future. Robbie, a listener wrote that she was confused by all the information coming out about the various mutants and the relationship to the current vaccines. She said, you do a great job of putting complex information and easy to understand frameworks, and I would appreciate it if you could do this now. What's happening in relatively simple terms? Jeremy, I appreciate her generous words, and I'll do my best to fulfill her request. In broadest terms, think about this virus replicating tens of millions of times every week. That's viral replications, of course, not people infected. And on occasion, the new copy of the virus is by chance slightly different than the original. Most of these times, the error is inconsequential and it disappears over time. But on occasion, it enhances the transmissibility of the virus and then it tends to make that mutant strain the dominant one. To understand how this happens, think of viruses competing for survival with even a slight advantage making a huge difference. The reason is the exponential rate of growth of viral spread. If a virus is transmitted on average from one person to three, and a new variant is transmitted from one person to four, the difference between this transmissibility of the two variants doesn't sound like much. But the three people with the original one will give it to nine and the nine to 27, while the four infected people with the new mutant will transmit it to 16 and then 64. And that begins to be the huge difference in a relatively short amount of time. Before there was a vaccine or in areas with low vaccination rates, a mutation that increased transmissibility by modifying the spike proteins on the outside of the virus would make it easier for it to stick to people's nasal mucosa 
And that would be a very powerful advantage. But once enough people are vaccinated, that difference becomes less important. In contrast, if a mutation makes the virus able to counter the antibodies that the vaccine produces, that would be big. And rapidly, the variant would become the most prevalent strain. And that's where, as a country, we are today. After close to 18 months, the Delta variant has the modified protein makeup to more readily stick to the nasal lining in unvaccinated people or in people whose immunity is waning. And it therefore is the current dominant strain. But of course, the real fear is that the next generation will have a mutation making the virus relatively immune to the antibodies generated by the current vaccines. And that would undo much of the progress our nation has achieved to date through vaccination. Will the mu variant be that one? Or the new or some later Greek letter? We don't know. But new variant spreads only in unvaccinated nations. That will be a sign of general transmissibility. If one spreads in vaccinated areas and begins to kill people with previous immunity, that will be very worrisome and it will require a revised vaccine. The combination of accelerated vaccination and third dose boosters will drive up immunity and allow the United States to win the battle against the current variants that are only somewhat vaccine resistant, at least in the short run. But with enough replications, the possibility exists that a future strain could arise, one that was relatively resistant to the currently available vaccines, one that would allow immune escape. And were all of that to happen, we'd have to begin the vaccine process anew, and our nation would suffer tremendous increase in disease, large numbers of deaths, and economic devastation. I hope this never happens. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.